I'm all wired now, I think. Yeah. You've all tasted a little bit of the silence and already getting refreshed by it. It's such a relief, isn't it, to come from the world and stop, even for a few moments, and just listen. <laughs> hmm. There's some suffering happening. So, I would like for the next couple of days to, for all of us to try to hold that space. And when you go home tonight, try to avoid conversations, except with your dog. Love, lovingness with the dog is okay, or the cat. Um, just try to retain your solitude as much as you can. And tomorrow morning, if you can practice on your own before you come, I recommend it. I know we don't start till 10, but that doesn't mean you can't start before. So that when you arrive here, you've already spent some time uh, refreshing your heart in the silence. The same way with the lunch break. Um, and with the evening break, let there not be a break. There's a break of our group being together, but do not stray very far from the space of silence that you're trying to create. Hold it by being mindful as much as you can. Make some kind of determination, such as every time you stand up or sit down, you will come back to present moment. You'll check in and see, am I thinking? Am I in the past or the future? Every time you open a door, oops, you open the door. Come back to the sense of standing, your feet touching the floor, and notice, was I thinking? What were you doing with your mind? Where were you? So how many doors do you walk through in a day? so many doors. There's one right there. So the minute we get up and leave, don't go through that door without awareness. And don't open your car door without awareness. And don't step into your house without awareness. And don't even go to the bathroom without going through that door mindful, present, aware. It's a moment of silence. It's cumulative. By the time you come back here tomorrow morning, you have been through so many doors, you could say probably 60. That's a whole hour. That's 60 moments of being aware and present, conscious, and not lost in the world. I have a couple of requests. One of them is that we make dedications. It's beautiful to practice for our own peace, for our own refreshment, for our own benefit. But it's even more beautiful to bring the goodness of that to
turning inward, bring it back out into the world and share it. Not only is it beautiful, but it's imperative that we do that. I consider it our moral imperative. So every time you come back for a new session, if you don't mind, try to think of someone you'd like to share our practice with. Write their name down on a piece of paper for me and leave it here so that I can share that dedication with all of us. You can write down the name of the person Maybe they're a friend, a relative, um, someone you work with, someone you like, someone you don't like, and you'd like to like them. So you can use that as a way of opening your heart to that person and sharing the goodness with them. It can't hurt. It can only help. It could be somebody who's sick or somebody who's depressed, someone who's died and you just want to share the, the merits, the benefits of any of the peace that we accumulate here, that we generate in our practice together through remembering them and wishing them well on their onward journey or remembering them and wishing them support, the pure energy wherever they are, whether they're in Toronto, Australia, Japan, anywhere, the Arctic, wherever they may be. If you'd like to share the goodness of our practice with Barack Obama or anyone, um, someone that you don't like and you wish them to develop their consciousness in a good way. Maybe we should pray for Osama bin Laden or someone like that. Somebody evil that we would like them to change. And you might think, they're not going to change because I write a little dedication. And but you don't know because we are connected. We have to, through the cumulative power of our intentions, we don't know the power of that. It, it, it's beyond our comprehension. But if we think in a negative way, of course it's impossible. But if we think in a positive way, it just might happen. If you don't believe in miracles, well, you never know. Something that the joint and combined force of our highest intentions is beyond the imagination of any of us. So it doesn't hurt to try. If you, it's just like if you think about the path and how difficult this work is, you could sit back in despair and say, it's impossible for me to purify my heart in one lifetime, so I better not even try. Well, as soon as you think that, then it is impossible. But if you think, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how impossible, I'm going to try. And then see what happens. And that reminds me of Martin Luther King. What he thought of doing 
30 or... It was 40 years ago last month. What he thought of doing 40 years ago seemed impossible. To bring about the equal treatment of blacks in the United States, to end discrimination, to take out the poison of racial hatred against his people from the minds of the white population in the United States seemed really impossible. Now, 40 years later, a, a black man is possibly going to be elected president. You see? Such, such courage for him to step forward and lead his people against all odds towards their freedom. And now look. So we should not approach our own freedom, our own liberation from suffering, from delusion, from despair, from ignorance. We should not think of it as something beyond our scope, beyond our ability. We should imagine that there is a way forward. We may not be able to do it on our own, but if we join hands, if we join forces, if we combine our seemingly little strengths into one big strength, this is the meaning of Sangha. That's what we're doing here. We're joining hands and we're attempting to do what seems impossible and we're making it easier for each other. The second request that I have, it's okay to yawn. <laughs> the second request that I have is, if you have any questions, and if they're about the practice, please will you write your questions down and leave them on a little piece of paper here so that uh, I can be aware and I will try to answer your questions during the, the few moments that I might dare to give a few reflections. But if you don't have a question, don't just try to fill up a piece of paper. But I, I, I ask you not to, not to ask things that are intellectual. Really, something that bothers you about the practice. Maybe there's, maybe you've learned something that feels contradictory, and you want to clarify it. Like, how come we can? How come we have to be silent, but you can talk? Maybe you know it might seem contradictory to you. You can ask, but more about, really more I'd like to hear about the difficulties you might be experiencing with keeping silent or with sitting still or with following your breath or instructions. You want more clarification about how to, how to practice or how to deal with 
difficult mind states or what's troubling you. And try to sign your name. It's, you know, we're spiritual family here, so don't be shy to tell me who it is. But if you can't, that's okay too. So please write down your questions. And I really like getting these pieces of paper because it feels like you're giving me feedback about your personal experience. Otherwise, I end up being like a kite without a string. And I just float off into very general reflections, which may not be useful. I find it much more helpful to speak to particular, unique individual um, conditions and questions that come from you. So that, that connects me more to what's happening here in this particular retreat. So those are my simple requests. I wanted to just share a little bit with you about how I got here tonight (laughs) before I came back to Canada I was living in Malaysia and uh, for the last couple of years and I've been coming here for two years visiting Toronto and Ottawa coming for two months at a time six weeks at a time and going back and last year at the end of that visit um, some of the folk were asking when I would be able to visit again and um, we were talking about if I should come for three months or wouldn't it be better to come for a little longer and uh, I think it was when Ajahn Viradhamma came to Adana in Ottawa and he said, why don't you come back and stay? Why don't you come back for good? And uh, I thought I would try it out. So I don't know what's for good. None of us know what, how much time we have left in this world. So I'm being installed in a little hermitage in Ottawa. At first I thought it would be in the country, but for practical reasons I'm setting up in a little wooden house in the area of Vanier for the first year anyway. And um, that'll save gas because that's very important now, not to use up too much gas. But um, maybe at some point, and also to be close to the people who feed me. So that's quite important because most of them live in Ottawa. So all I ask is that during these next two days you put a little bit of food in my bowl and uh, I'll bring it tomorrow. I only carry it uh, when there's going to be a meal. So we'll share a little bit of blessings tomorrow by eating together. 
unless you decide that you didn't like the food that was brought and you slip out to go somewhere else for some nutritional input. But I don't have a choice about this, so I will eat whatever you offer. And um, before coming, we put together a little schedule, and this was organized by Janice and the Toronto Buddhist community. Is there anyone here from outside of Toronto? Where are you coming from? Kitchener. Kitchener. I was just in Waterloo. Where are you coming from? Guelph. Guelph. Oh, that's right. Sorry, I forgot. So now I know what you're talking about because I was just in that area. Beautiful area. And uh, I was very inspired by the commitment of the people I met in Ontario in the past couple of years. There seems to be a maturity in practice. But one thing I've noticed is a kind of shyness about precepts. And uh, I think that it was lovely that all of you didn't hesitate tonight to take the precepts. If you really want to grow in this practice, you don't have to become monks and nuns. You can do it by dedicating yourselves more and more to this development of virtue. And even though you might think it's not important, you could taste the deliciousness of silence the moment you sat down, I'm sure. But really, precepts are the foundation. Just like all of us are sitting here tonight on the floor or in a chair, and that floor and that chair are the foundation of our ability to sit. If you don't have a chair or a floor to sit on, what will you sit on? So think of the precepts as the seat, the seat of this practice. If you haven't got a seat, like a footstool has legs, without those legs, a human being has legs, without legs we can't stand up. So if you want to stand up in the Dharma, think of precepts as the legs of your practice, as the footstool of your practice, as the, the foundation of your practice. Any time that you wander far away from those precepts, then you are undermining your ability to stand and to be stable. You're undermining your ability to focus. Precepts, vows, I, I think they're very similar, are what harness our energy to the truth. If we want to be harnessed to the Dharma, we have to be more and more honest with ourselves. If we want to be honest with ourselves, we have to be honest with each other. So if you, look, if you look at what the precepts were that we took tonight, that you undertook tonight, they're really about sewing together the, the cracks or the holes in our integrity. And they're divided into these five areas. 
So there's the area of protecting life, being, being honest in terms of our harmlessness towards each other. So if you ever have an evil thought, a hateful thought, where you might want to harm someone, and in a gross way, I'm sure none of you would harm another person. But what about uh, animals? What about your dog or your cat or your bird? What about worms or insects? And you might have questions you could ask. What if a mosquito bites me? Shouldn't I kill it? So just think about, what if you have hateful thoughts? Think about the, the impulses to harming living beings and how that impulse takes us away from our own integrity because the impulse to harm leads us away from a peaceful and um, whole abiding with ourselves. So in the same way when you want to practice silence, when you want to be really still within yourself, if you're having hateful thoughts, killing thoughts, then how can you practice peace? How can your mind be silent? So see the connection between the precept to not harm and the stillness in your own heart. Not to abide in hateful thoughts to that extent. In the same way the precept to not take things which don't belong to us. So how can we be generous with what we have, our possessions? It doesn't mean that when the burglar comes you welcome him and say, sure, come on in. Here you can have my cell phone, my computer. It's not like, it's not about that. It's not, we don't want to be ridiculous. But at the same time, if something has not been offered to us, just as we want our property to be respected, we should respect the property of others. And so this helps us not to have regrets. If we find something, like if you're in a, uh, a bus and somebody gets up and leaves their, their bag behind, then it's incumbent on us as human beings to say to that person, wait a minute, you left something. Rather than to think, wow, look at that. It's just, I love that shawl, I'll have it. It's a real temptation, isn't it? But as sons and daughters of truth, as brothers and sisters in truth, we would want to protect each other and to return that that property to that person as soon as possible. Never to abuse the situation. That's, it's really about using our, our energy in that way, about our in, inclining our minds towards protecting each other's property. And, in this, and go, go, the, go the mile, an extra mile, being generous, even to the extent of if somebody needs your clock, you offer it. Or your boots. 
I remember once in the monastery, um, I were a, a size six and a half, and there was another nun who had the same size as me. But we only had, in the early days, you know, and it was snowy place in England, there was only one pair of boots that was size six and a half. So when we had to go on alms round in the snow, we would share the boots. So if there were, if the two of us wanted to go on alms round, we had to, we couldn't because there was only one pair of boots our size. So another nun who wore a bigger size would go with the per, one of us. We couldn't both go. That's how we had to decide it. And then it was very interesting. I noticed one day when I wanted to go, but she happened to come and get the boots first. And I remember thinking, oh gee, I can't go because I have no boots. So I borrowed this, the bigger boots. And the bigger boots, they were big on me. So then when I went outside, there were always two people volunteering to go and walk for alms in the village. This was one of our practices. And it so happened that I ended up walking with the nun who had the six and a half, you know, the boots that I, that fit me. And I remember the whole way thinking how uncomfortable I was. And I had such a grumpy mind because she was wearing my boots. I mean the boots that I wanted. And I felt very kind of ashamed of myself because here we were walking for alms trying to imitate what the monks and nuns did in the time of the Buddha. You know, walk and beg for our food in the village and you know we're representing the Blessed One but I had such a grumpy mind because my feet hurt because the shoes, the boots that I was wearing too, were too big and I resented the fact that the nun that I was with was wearing the comfortable boots that I would have liked so this is not, this is not generosity it's a generosity is I'm so glad that she got the boots. I would rather that I would be uncomfortable because if I had gotten the boots first, she would have had to wear a seven and a half or a seven, whatever it was, and she would have had to become uncomfortable. So at a certain point, it hit me. I realized that I had such a stingy state of mind. And when I realized that, suddenly that the fact that I was wearing these big, big boots didn't matter anymore. And I started to feel happy that she was probably comfortable in her boots. I wondered if she, it had ever occurred to her that maybe I was uncomfortable. Mm. But that didn't matter. So it's miserable to be stingy. That's what I realized. It's miserable it's worse to be stingy in your mind than to, to have a pain in your foot, actually, than for your feet to hurt just because uh, it's not comfortable to wear footwear that's too big for you. Does that make sense? Anyway, it was a wonderful lesson. And um, 
I never had to, to do that practice again because very soon afterwards I received a pair of boots that fit me. <laughs> but I learned such a wonderful lesson by not having enough. And I never had to practice giving up using those boots in case she wanted them. So it's amazing what having very little can teach us or what giving up the comforts of ownership can reveal to us. So practicing generosity, yeah, sure, I could have run and gotten the, the possession first and have it for me. That's a selfish way of thinking. But unselfishness is very liberating. So then, and the precepts go on like that, with sexual misconduct, or with using our sexual and our sensual energy wisely and selflessly, how we protect each other from harm. You want that experience for yourself, you want the gratification for yourself, but what does it do to somebody else? How much pain do you cause another person by getting what you want? How much pain? And you know the answer. All of you have seen it. We see it in our society. We see it in our families. We may have come from parents who divorced or, or experienced somebody betraying us. I certainly had it in my own life. It's, it's deadly. Don't do it. Refrain. That momentary gratification, that... Or even if it, you think, well, you know, I don't need this relationship when I can have a better one. Stop right there and try to realize how much pain that choice might lead to. This precept is so very important. It's not just about um, gratification in terms of, our, of the body, but it's, it's also important for us to find ways that we can protect other people from making those choices. If ever you're able to counsel someone who's, about, who's on the verge of falling in love with someone who's married, then go the extra mile, take a risk, and give them a bit of advice. Have you ever thought of saying no to that? Have you ever thought of how much damage your choice is going to cause to that person's? You know, that kind of thing. It's like sticking your neck out. You, you might think that you'll just be quiet because you can't be bothered or it's too risky. Maybe it's worth the risk. What if you were in their shoes and then you end up making a terrible mistake and you wish there had been somebody who had sounded an alarm and warned you and there wasn't. That's one way that we can be spiritual friends to each other. It's not you who's breaking the precept but you see somebody else going in that direction. Reach out. Reach out. Because it's so important. When we keep these precepts we protect each other. We really do. We set an example for others. They may not think it's important but what if they do what a gift 
The same with tail-bearing, telling lies, ratting on each other, gossiping, or speaking about somebody's faults because you think that it might do them a lot of good. But actually, you may be betraying a confidence that will cause a lot of harm. But, and lying, oh, telling the truth is very, very important. Sometimes our silence is collusion. So, you know, you know something and you don't express it and it's very, very important to share that. Sometimes keeping quiet is very, very important. It's really very difficult to say, there's no formula, but by all means to protect the truth. So I can't give you a general formula when to speak up, when to keep quiet. We have to grow in wisdom to know what, what, when it's right and when it isn't. But to be someone who guards the truth at all cost and to prevent ourselves from betrayal and from um, manipulating facts to gain advantage certainly to, for money's sake, certainly for the sake of um, esteem or success on a worldly level, or to gain points, or to make somebody believe something about us. To make an impression is wrong. It's really wrong. To betray someone's confidence is very wrong. So many situations where we can cause harm. To lie to ourselves. Now, you're not breaking a precept, but that's really ignorant. And in our Dharma practice, when we're meditating and we're lying to ourselves, like you're feeling angry and there's a lot of, or there's a lot of hatred in the mind and you're sitting there trying to deny that you feel angry. That's a lie. It's, if we can get in touch with that and realize that we're lying or we're in denial, that will be very, very fruitful for us in the practice. If we can get in touch with where we're in denial. And that might take a long time of just being able to observe the breath and discover the places that are locked deep within us where we've tucked these little lies away carefully so that we don't have to look because it hurts to see where we've covered up our anger, our fear, our grief, our lack of confidence, our self-hatred. And we need to open up to that slowly, slowly to open up to what we really feel. That will free us from all that unwholesomeness. But in order to be able to do that, we have to, be, we have to feel so whole in the way we are with everyone else. And virtue, virtuous speech and conduct and thought will help us get 
to a place of wholeness whereby we can penetrate through our own inner delusion enough to see where we've been hiding or what we've been hiding from. This might not make sense now, but maybe it will in the silence. Drinks, drugs, <laughs> intoxicants, keeping clarity in the mind, well, it's a support in everyday life. You, if any of you remember teenagehood <laughs> or have a teenager, you'll know what confusing mind states, what trouble they bring. So why do we have to add more to that by um, indulging the sensory experiences to such an extent that we become inebriated and, are, and lose control of our minds, even in, even in a small way. Because we, we could cause a terrible accident, not just in a car, but in the way we drive our Dharma vehicle, this body and this mind. The way we run our lives. Even to be drunk with pride is dangerous. It's all connected. If we keep one precept, it strengthens us in keeping all of them. So it's very difficult to keep all of them when one of them is being badly violated. And I leave it to you to try to figure out which one is the most important. I used to think the fifth one was the most important. And then a very wise monk told me that the, the precept of speech was the most important. But I, I, I think it's, all, it's pretty relative. They probably all support each other the way the eight limbs of the Eightfold Noble Path supports the path, each one kind of equally to make it a wheel that, that spins and turns. Anyway, I'd like to offer that for your reflection tonight. And uh, it's quite late now, so we could perhaps do a little closing chant together, if you wish.